we're going to begin by reading a scripture. Uh, we're in Mark chapter 12. We're going through this early account of Jesus' life, written by a man called Mark, who heard it from a man called Peter. And Peter was one of Jesus' friends. He was with him for three years. And he told Mark what to write down. And we're up to the 12th chapter. And we're in verse, um, verse 18 through to 27. Alrighty. So get out your phone, Bible on your phone, put it on flight mode, distraction free. Verse 18, read along with me. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. I'm going to pray when you join me. Oh, Lord, do not let us be in error this morning. Teach us our mind and our soul. Reveal to us eternity. Prepare us for it. And give us joy and hope in the present. For your glory, Lord Jesus, we love you. Amen. Death on a Sunday morning. Not the greatest kind of way to kind of cap off the weekend. But I want to begin with a question, a heavy-hitting question. Um, it's very thematic to the passage, and it's this. Is there life after death? Is there life after death? And what will it be like? Obviously, there's great uncertainty about that question. Uh, because you kind of have to die to know the answer. You kind of have to have been there uh, to really get it. 
I remember, and I want to put an image on the screen, I remember in 1999 going to a birthday party. I was nine years old. I went to Sega World. Now, does anyone here remember Sega? Ollie, yes, thank you. Okay, Sega was an old gaming console. Uh, and Sega World, they created this thing. It only lasted three years, and it was in Darling uh, Square. And the image might not come up, but that's okay. Just imagine this epic indoor theme park, all related to gaming. And when I was there, there's all these rides you can do. It was a birthday party. It was heaps of fun. But while I was there, there was this one thing. There was this one uh, attraction, and it was called the guillotine. Uh, And there might be an image of this. Let's see. Uh, The guillotine is kind of scary. And as a nine-year-old, you've got to imagine this, like a little fat, chubby me with blonde hair. And there's this big picture. It goes to the wall, to the ceiling. It says, the guillotine. And it's got one of those French massive chop-your-head-off wooden things, okay? And so you've got, you know, a brown-painted thing with a dude with a scythe standing there, and you've got a room for your hand here, a room for your other hand here, and you put your head in like that. And when you put your head in, it's all pitch black, and it just starts counting. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three... Two, one, and then this great gush of air comes down, this sliding, scything noise is sing. And after that, I kind of came out of there, and I was a bit shaken for the rest of the day. And as I was sitting in the car home, I distinctly remember not being happy, because I distinctly remember thinking, what if I died today? What if I died today? What... And my thought was, I don't want to die today because I don't want to go to heaven. I didn't want to go to heaven because heaven, in my mind, my body would stay here, this spirit would float up there and just float around. And I actually didn't really know exactly what it would do, but I just thought, I will be here and my spirit, who I don't really know, will be in heaven having fun and I'll be stuck here. I didn't want to go to heaven. I wonder if you've ever had the same feeling. What will happen when I die? Do I want there to be anything after death? There's many different worldviews that answer that question, what happens when we die. The Buddhists, if you've achieved nirvana, you experience extinction. For the Hindus, your Atman, your soul, gets reunited with the eternal universal presence called Brahman. What happens when you die? Maybe you've got a materialistic, perhaps atheistic understanding. We just cease to exist. Nothing happens. It can give us great fear, or there can be great peace. Hamlet, in Shakespeare's play, Hamlet, in that great speech, to be or not to be, the whole theme of that is death. And Hamlet says this about death. He says, it's the undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns, puzzles the will, and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others we know not of. To die, to sleep, to sleep perchance to dream, to dream what ills may come. See, Hamlet was so afraid of death that he'd rather be alive now. He didn't know what would happen after death. Do you know what's going to happen after death? Today, we're going to meet a group of people called the Sadducees. 
they had really strong views about what happened after you died. And we're going to see from Jesus that they are in grave error. And my hope for today's passage, my hope for today is that we would not be in error regarding eternity. That we would not be in error regarding eternity. The title of this message, to continue on from last week, is Q&A with Jesus, part two. And we're going to go through it in two parts, simply, the question and the reply. But as we get through it, you'll see that there is mines of gold in here for your life. So let's begin in verse 18, and let's get stuck into the passage itself. So verse 18, it says, And Sadducees came to him. We've got to remember where we, where we are, so let's paint the picture again. Think Middle East, 30 AD, really long time ago, dusty streets. They're in the temple built by Herod in Jerusalem. And Jesus has come in a couple of days before, and he's basically kicked all the chairs over, kicked out all the people who were selling things in the temple, and really caused a ruckus. It's right near the end of Jesus' life. He's going to die in a couple of days. And the religious elite who were there at the temple at the time, look at this guy, Jesus, who's just come into their place and overturned the way that they were doing things. And they say, by what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus says, I'll answer you that if you answer this. Whose baptism, or where did John, John the Baptist's baptism come from? From heaven? Or was it just from man? And they don't want to answer him. They go away and they, they plot Jesus' death. That is, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and the scribes. They all get together and they want to plot Jesus' death because they don't think he's from God. They think he's just a man. What do you think about Jesus this morning? It's a big claim. Is he God? Or is he just a man? They thought he was just a man. And so what they do is they hold counsel and like, we're going to get him. We want this guy gone. We want him dead. And so last week we saw the first round of questions. Jesus is interrogated by the Pharisees and the Herodians. And they ask him about, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? They're trying to make him fall off the cliff on either side. If he says, yes, pay your taxes, he's not the Messiah. He's not going to take over Israel and the people will stop following him. If he says no, then he's a rebel, a terrorist, a vigilante, and Caesar might get him. And they're like, yes, we've got him here. Either or, cliff, either side, we've got him. And then Jesus replies, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and the things that are God, give to God. Jesus says, both and. God and Caesar. You have a duty to both. And the response is that they marvel. The Pharisees and Herodians, shucks, we didn't get him, he got us. And we don't know if they left or not, but then the next group come in. The Sadducees, they strut through, and they are pretty pumped, I think, because they think they've got a winning strategy. We're going to take Jesus down. They all sort of had their own rivalries, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. So maybe it's like, I said it was kind of like a dance comp last week, where, you know, everyone's got the dancing, everyone's going, oh. And so this time, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they got done. Uh, they got danced off. And so the Sadducees come in, and they're ready to take Jesus down. They've got, they're going to bust a move. And they've got this well-rehearsed move that they think is going to win. Uh, now, you might be like, what's a Sadducee? It's a weird word. We don't even know where the word came from. But the Sadducees, uh, they were the aristocratic party. They were like the billionaires club. They were the big boys. They were so high 
in stature and in power and um, influence that they didn't care that no one liked them. See, they were, apparently they were really rude, they were really earthly, they were really worldly, they kind of were collaborators and they kind of just did their own thing. Uh, but they didn't, no one liked them apparently. They were pigs, but no one really, they didn't care. Uh, and so the Sadducees were told um, by Cranfield, quoted in Donald English, were this. It's on the screen. The Sadducees were the aristocratic party made up of the high priestly and leading families in Jerusalem. They were wealthy and worldly. Their arrogance and harshness in the administration of justice were notorious. Conservative in doctrine, they rejected what they regarded as Pharisaic innovations. But their main concern was for the maintenance of their privileges, not for doctrinal purity. Notice how it says in the text there, so verse 18, Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. It's a really important clue that Mark's already given us. They don't believe that when you die, anything happens. They believe in extinction. They believe that life is here on earth, live it up. They were YOLO, basically. The Sadducees, as 2,000 years before, they were the YOLO kids going, just you've only got one life, God will bless you here, but apart from that, don't worry about death. And so they bring to Jesus... Their move. They bring to Jesus their question in verse 19. Have a look at it. Teacher. Again, they don't really seem as a teacher. It's a bit of hypocrisy, a bit of honey in their words. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up an offspring for his brother. And then they've got this story. So what they're actually quoting is an Old Testament passage in Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. And it was a law instituted by God uh, because in the Old Testament, the way it worked was that your family uh, was governed by the eldest and each family had their own lineage. So when you had a child, it was really important. Your inheritance was passed on through the children. So if you were married and had no kids, it was like a curse because you couldn't have children to pass on your family name to. I don't think we're as concerned with it now. Uh, some people are. They name their children like, you know, whatever, William Jr. or whatever they've got. Uh, but it's not a big concern for us. But for them, it was massive. And so to have a brother who doesn't have children is a real concern. And so God instituted this law in Deuteronomy 25, verse 5, which says this. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Now, that'd be really weird if we did it now, uh, but it made sense in their culture. It was actually a really important thing for their culture for that to happen. And so the Sadducees bring out their dance move. They've got this one. They've got this story. So here we go. Taking this verse to the extreme, verse 19 says this. No, verse 20. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring, i.e., that word means no children. And the second brother took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven brothers left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, 
Whose wife will she, will, will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. That's their gotcha moment. Because what they believe is that when you died, heaven, if there was such a thing, the Pharisees taught, it was like the continuation of here, up there, so to speak. That heaven is just the continuation of earth. And the most important thing in their world was their family and their lineage and their inheritance. So when you get to heaven, families just continue. Your marriage continues, your posterity continues, your children continue. And so you've got this absurd scenario where you get to heaven and it's the most awkward family reunion. Because they're like, we're all married. And you're destined to awkward family photos for the rest of eternity. That's what the Sadducees are saying. If marriage continues in heaven, this won't work Therefore, there is no heaven. There is no resurrection. How can we have eternal life if this absurd scenario is what's going to play out? That's their gotcha. They think they've got Jesus. Because in that moment, Jesus either has to kind of go, oh, uh, yeah, well, maybe it won't be awkward, or uh, I don't know, it'll sort of work out like this. Or Jesus has to deny the resurrection. And so Jesus, they're trying to make him lose his authority, lose his influence. They're trying to make him look silly. Kind of backflips on them, majorly. And so Jesus is going to reply. And as I read this, I couldn't quite work out if Jesus is really strong, harsh, strong, or grace strong, but either way, Jesus is very strong, very bold, very direct with them. He's going to correct their error. So that's part one, the question. We're set up, they're trying to push Jesus off the cliff again, they've launched the question, and now part two of the sermon is the reply. And in Jesus' reply, we're going to pause, we're going to camp out here in Jesus' words, and we're going to see two major errors. Firstly, a general error, and then specific errors, if you're taking notes. So Jesus' reply, general errors, and then specific errors. And in his reply, if you're willing to hear, he's going to pull back the curtain of heaven. He's going to give you a glimpse into life after death. So let's have a look. First General error, how theology goes wrong. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Like that, I'm a teacher, right? So when someone asks you a question or makes a statement, your normal reaction is, Whatever they say, try and reformulate it, encourage them, tell them, oh, that was good, but maybe we should consider this. Or we say things like, there's no such thing as a stupid question. Uh, but Jesus basically just looks him in the face and goes, that's a stupid question. Or not rudely, but you're wrong. There's sometimes as a teacher where you just, you can't rework their answer. You can't make good out of it. You just have to say, you're wrong. And notice here, Jesus says you're wrong. And notice what that means. It's a pretty offensive point for modern people. It's possible to be wrong. Take a breath. It's possible to be wrong about God. We live in a very pluralistic society. We live in a world which says, believe what you want to believe, 
If that's true for you, it's true for you. What I believe is true for me. And there's some good in that. There's some beauty and tolerance in that, that we're not trying to ram views down each other's throats. But if it gets to the point where we're just saying all truths are the same, all claims on life are equal, Jesus would correct us. Jesus doesn't live like that. Jesus doesn't think that is possible. And so he looks at the Sadducees squarely in the eye and says, you are wrong. Again, in verse 28, it actually, 27, it says, you are quite wrong. So just in case they didn't understand that they were wrong, they're wrong. It's possible to be wrong about God. So how did they get it wrong? Where did they err? Well, firstly, Jesus talks in general. He says, because you neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. What he's basically kind of giving there is, in general, how does theology go wrong? Well, you get wrong ideas about God when you don't know the Bible and when you don't have a big enough view of God. Now, these guys, they knew the Bible. It's possible to really know the Bible and not know the Bible. It's possible. They, in fact, they might have even memorized the first five books of the Bible. So they probably know it better than you. Yet Jesus still looks at them and says, you do not know the Scriptures. You do not understand them. You've missed the point. Is it possible for you today that maybe you're wrong about the Bible? That you're holding wrong views? It's kind of a scary question. Because where do we get our theology from? We, we come to church each week and we hear sermons. We get it there. But you can't be fooled into thinking this is the only place you get your ideas about God from. Miley Cyrus might be your theologian. Justin Bieber. Your workmates. What your mum and dad have taught you. Another religious perspective. The age and feeling of the time. That might actually be influencing what you know about God. And what you do is you bring assumptions to the Bible. And so you reread the Bible with something that you've already assumed. The Sadducees assume that there's no such thing as a resurrection. So when they read all these scriptures, they don't see the point. They don't see what Jesus is going to show them later on. Where are you getting your theology from? If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever read through the whole Bible? How long have you been a Christian? Have you, never, have you ever read through the whole Bible? Have you ever read through the whole Old Testament? Have you ever read through the whole New Testament? It's possible that there are many hidden views that you have which may be incorrect because you haven't searched the Scriptures the whole way through. Let me encourage you. If you've never read the Bible the whole way through, you don't have to to be a Christian. You don't have to to get to heaven. But if you want to stay away from theological error, if you want to stay away from missing out on what God has to teach you, let me encourage you, give it a go. Read the scriptures. The second way that they were wrong is that they didn't understand the power of God. They didn't really think God could make it happen. They didn't actually believe in a spiritual world. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons, these Sadducees. And how many of us here doubt the power of God? 
I do at times. Have you ever thought, could God really heal? Could God really part the sea for the Israelites? Will God really provide for my financial needs? Will God really take me to heaven? Have you ever doubted the power of God? See, when you have a small God, Jesus says you fall into theological error. And so what we need, and I like a a pastor, a guy called Kevin DeYoung, he puts it like this. What we need to stay away from theological error, from getting the wrong idea about God, is this. Ready? You need a big God and an open Bible. A big God and an open Bible. Because if you're a just big God person, like so maybe some of you came to faith in a big God kind of church where God can move mountains, God can change your life, God can do anything. You believe, you believe, you believe, but you haven't really read the Bible, so you're kind of just going on the vibe and the spirit of things, and you don't really know if God can do it, but you think if you just say it loud enough, fast enough, with enough intensity, it'll happen. God is big, God is strong. You can fall into error. But also, you can fall into error on this side too, if you're like me, who grew up in a very strong Word of God church, and you doubt the power of God, and your faith becomes dry, your faith becomes all about the meaning of the words and the adjectives and the nouns, and, the, and you lose sight that God wants to change your life. We need a big God and an open Bible to stay away from theological error. Question. How big is your God? And how open is your Bible? So Jesus is trying to help us to not fall into eternal error. He's trying to help us to not be in error about eternity. And so he gives us a general statement. You are wrong because you do not know the power of God. You do not know the scriptures. We need a big God and an open Bible. But let's get into the details of the actual question and let's see what we can learn there. So let's move into point two of Jesus' reply, the specific error. The first specific error that these Sadducees make is that they're misled concerning the power of God in the resurrection. The first specific error that they've made is they're misled concerning the power of God in the resurrection. Let's have a look at the Sadducees' argument. Basically, I've stated it before, but let's get back into the story. You've got a brother who doesn't have a kid, who marries. It goes on and on and on, seven brothers. And their assumption is there can't be a heaven because that situation doesn't work. It's illogical. How could one brother be married to this wife and this one to this wife and they're all married, seven-way marriage, it's horrible, it's, it doesn't work, you're silly for believing in the resurrection. It's kind of like, you know, you read Genesis 1 and some people say, you are stupid for believing that God created the world. It's like that moment, you are stupid for believing in the resurrection, Jesus. They had an assumption that in heaven, it's just earth played out for eternity. But Jesus corrects them. Look at verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, notice that, for when 
they rise, not if. When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. They're presented to Jesus, the old, you know, if God's all-powerful, can he make a taco too hot to eat kind of scenario. And Jesus comes back and says, you've come with the wrong assumption. You see, they have a faulty assumption. They've brought the wrong idea to the text. They've brought the wrong idea to Jesus. Jesus said a really sobering thought. Just pause for a second. There is no marriage in heaven. They neither marry nor are given in marriage. Therefore, there's no problem with this absurd example. There's no marriage in heaven, so there's no brother with, or one wife with seven brothers. It doesn't work like that. They assume that what happens here on earth continues in heaven, and Jesus is saying here that there's a discontinuity. Some things continue, but this thing, marriage, fades away. Now, depending on what your marriage is like at the moment, you might be like, woohoo! Uh, hopefully not. Hopefully, hopefully you are like, oh, that sucks. There's no marriage in heaven. I love my wife. I love my family. What does that mean? You might be a bit crestfallen. It is a sobering thought. Marriage lasts a lifetime, but not in an eternity. But I think there's actually great hope in this. I think there's great hope in knowing that marriage doesn't last into eternity. Firstly, if you're single or widowed, marriage is not the be-all and end-all because marriage passes away. We strive, we want marriage. I remember (laughs) pre-marriage, just all you want is to be married. But there's something greater awaiting because marriage passes away. If you're in the darkness of a troubled marriage, there's a greater marriage to come between you and Jesus. And if you are married and experiencing the joy and bliss of a functioning, healthy marriage, know this. If your marriage, which is so good here on earth, fades away into heaven, it's going to be eclipsed by something even better. So you think, I can't imagine what heaven would be like because my life is so good here on earth, my marriage is so nice, Jesus is promising that there will be something better in heaven. An intimacy better in heaven, a relationship better in heaven than even the one you have here on earth. And finally, if you are married now, it also gives you perspective. John Piper wrote a book, he's a pastor in America, a Baptist guy, he wrote a book called It's a weird title when you think about this momentary marriage. We spend a lot of time as Christians saying, marriage is permanent, don't get divorced. But here Jesus is teaching, marriage is actually momentary. Not in that you should get divorced here on earth if things aren't working out, but it will fade away upon death. And that should give you perspective for your marriage. I know it does mine. Francis Chan wrote a great book called Living in Light of Eternity, or Marriage in Light of Eternity. And after reading that book with my wife and chatting with Dave, I was really challenged. Because what he talks about is not preparing your life for the last 10 years here on earth, but preparing your life and your wife and your family and your kids for the first 10,000 years of heaven. You see, your marriage here on earth is so important, but your eternity is infinitely more. And it should give you perspective. Marriage fades away. And I remember thinking, uh, I think Dave gave me this illustration, that because marriage 
fades away. There's something greater. That our marriage has a purpose here on earth, and it's not just me, my wife. It's us and the family and Jesus. If you imagine it like a car, God's given us a mission. As the husband, you're in the driving seat you know, with Jesus, um, and in the passenger seat is your wife, and in the, ki- in the back are your kids, and you're all still driving with the mission that Jesus has given you. See, one of the temptations for marriage is to be so consumed that you pull over to the side, you go to the rest stop for a picnic, and you just wait there, and you never get back in the car. You never live your whole life for the glory of God and the mission that Jesus has given you. But marriage is momentary. So take your kids, put them in the back, get your wife, put her in the passenger seat, man, and let's drive onward into heaven with the mission and the task and the calling that Jesus has given us. There is no marriage in heaven. Their first error. But Jesus wants to give us even more detail because what will heaven be like? If there is no marriage, if it's not just life 2.0 in heaven, what will marriage, well, not what will marriage, what will heaven be like? Notice what he says at the end of verse 25. Did you notice that little kind of weird add-on? But I like angels in heaven. Jesus brings in angels here to kind of show how different we will be like in heaven. It's sort of like, uh, it's hard to do it now, but before little Harvey was out of the womb, if you were trying to explain to little Harvey up the back, this is what life is like outside of the womb, Harvey would be like, I don't get it. I'm just so, I like it here. It's really nice and warm. (laughs) Or if you came up to a caterpillar, the very hungry caterpillar, and you spoke to him and you said, one day you will be a glorious butterfly. He'd be like, I just want to eat that frankfurt. You know, that's what he would be thinking, because he can't get it. You can't, as a human, really understand what heaven will be like. But Jesus gives us a little image. You'll be like an angel in heaven. I want to pause for a moment, because the Bible actually does give us a sneak peek into heaven in chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation. I want you to, if you want, you don't have to, I can't force you to, Close your eyes for a moment. I'm going to read to you and try and paint a picture for you what it would be like to be an angel in heaven. See, Jesus is saying, what you'll be like in heaven, you'll be like an angel. You won't be an angel. They're distinct. Okay, they're their own being in and of themselves. They are neither married nor given in marriage. They do not have kids. But what angels do in heaven is worship God for all eternity. Their center and communion is God, and they do his will perfectly. So Revelation chapter 4 paints this incredible picture of what heaven will be like. So if you want, close your eyes. Revelation chapter 4 was written by a guy called John, and he was seeing this vision. It's not a literal vision, it's a metaphor. But it says that he was taken up into heaven, And when he gets there, he sees this great expanse. And it zooms in, and in the middle is a throne. And on the throne is one whose appearance is like shining crystals and jasper. Light is emanating from this throne. And then it zooms out a little bit. And there's 24 other thrones encircled around this one throne. 
Just imagine that. 24 thrones, one massive throne, bright light on it. And there's 24 elders with crowns on these thrones. And then it zooms out a little bit more and you see the sky and there's lightning and rumbling and thunder. And there's seven lampstands and a sea of crystal in the expanse. And then it zooms out a little bit further and you see these crazy four creatures who are circling all these thrones with the 24 elders, with the massive throne in the middle. And this is what the awesome creatures are saying. This is what angels see in heaven. These creatures are singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then those elders on the 24 thrones, they fall on their knees, they take off their crowns and they put it before the major throne. And then they sing this, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. But there's more. Jesus rocks up, pictured as a slain lamb. And he comes to that middle throne with the 24 elders on their throne, all bowing their knees. And when Jesus appears, it says this in verse 11 of chapter 5, everyone bows down. And John records this. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them were saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and power and might forever and ever and ever. That's what it's like to be in heaven. That's what it's like to be an angel. Full expression of joyous, unceasing worship of God. A question for you though. Does this thought Thrill your soul? Or does it put you off a little bit? Does this thought thrill your soul, this thought of beauty and glory, singing worthy is the Lamb, the song that I want to sing for all eternity? Does it thrill your soul? Or does it make you think, oh, do I really want to go to heaven? Do I really want to be an angel? I put it to you. It doesn't have to thrill your soul right this very moment. We've all had different experiences this week. But if this never thrills your soul, maybe you've got Christianity wrong. It's a very harsh thing to say. But if this doesn't thrill your soul, maybe you've got it wrong. Because this is what angels are doing. And Jesus said, we're going to be like angels. And so this is what we're going to be doing in heaven. It didn't thrill my soul. You know, with the guillotine story, I didn't want to go to heaven. But when I was 16 or 17, I heard another sermon. 
a sermon which asks this question. If you could go to heaven and have an eternal wonderland, if you could go to heaven and it was just, you know, there's a Macca's tree, a Slurpee tree, you can eat all the chocolate you want, you can drink all you want, you don't get fat, there's no anger, there's no harshness, there's great family times, there's roller coasters forever, there's whatever you want, whenever you want, all the time, but there's no Jesus, would you still want to go? If you could go to heaven and experience eternal wonderland, but Jesus isn't there, would you still want to go? And when I was asked the question, I was honest with myself, and I said, yeah, I'd still want to go. What's your answer? Would you still want to go? Would that be good enough? Psalm 73 says this. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. Paul said this in Philippians chapter 1. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Is dying gain for you? There'd be sadness, of course. But does the thought of meeting Jesus face to face and worshipping him and getting to say with your own voice, worthy is the lamb, does that thrill your soul? Because if it doesn't, if it doesn't, and it never has, maybe you've missed the whole point of Christianity. It's not about marriage forever. It's not about eternal wonderland. It's about the throne of God and the Lamb who sits on it, who died for you, who we will sing to for all eternity. You see, for Mormons, their good news is this. You love your family? Families are eternal. If you become a Mormon and you pledge your family to God, you will be with your family for eternity. That's not the good news of Christianity. The good news of Christianity is not about a marriage relationship. It's about a spiritual relationship you have with God. And if you are a Christian, and at the moment you're not thrilled by that idea of heaven, if you are a Christian and you're not going, to die is gain. It would suck to die. It would it'd be really bad to leave my family. But I do want to see Jesus face to face. If you're not, let me ask you this question. Have you become too worldly? You see, we start off often when we're converted being really excited. Yes, worthy is the lamb. Tell everyone about Jesus. Give my life, give my money, give my all. Take my life and let it be. Singing the songs, hands in the air. But the reality is that sometimes the distraction of life sets in. And we just become more worldly. We become more attached to this world. The Sadducees were really worldly. See, they didn't want a heaven because they had it all here. They were the top. They were kicking it. They were living it up. They were lit. It was amazing. They had it all sorted. Are you distracted by the things of this world? Have you become worldly? I know that I've confronted this question myself because there are times when I can say, to die is gain, oh, I'd rather just keep living. 
Well, their first error is they misunderstood the power of God, that God will give us a resurrection body, that we will live for all eternity, and it won't be a marriage relationship, it'll be a relationship between us and God and all of creation that puts their faith in Jesus Christ. Do you long for heaven? The second way that they were misled, their second specific error, is they were misled concerning the scriptures. They misunderstood the Bible. You see, the Sadducees actually only believed in the first five books of the Bible. It's called the Pentateuch. They only believed in the first five books. They thought that everything that came after that was sort of like creative license. You know, that God didn't really say it, that it can't be trusted. Uh, And the Pharisees, they believed the whole Old Testament, but they also believed a whole extra bit as well. Uh, the Mishnah and the Talmud and the Midrash, all that type of stuff, if you know it, they believed in all of that. And so the Sadducees are reacting to the Pharisees and they go, no, we are the purists. We only believe in the first five books of the Bible. And so Jesus, to prove to them that there is a resurrection, he uses a passage that's only from the first five books of the Bible. It's a good point. If you ever want to try and convince someone of something, start with something they already believe in and then build your argument from there bottom-up approach. Oh, what do you believe? Okay, well, let's go from here. That's what Jesus does here. Okay, he goes to Exodus chapter 3, and he says this in verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? They had. (laughs) They probably memorized it. In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Jesus here is quoting Exodus chapter 3. This is when Moses meets God, and in Exodus chapter 3, God reveals himself and introduces himself and says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And I reckon the Sadducees, and maybe you and I was before I studied it, were thinking, how does that prove that there's a resurrection? Now, it might have proved it if it was the argument was from the tense of the verb. You notice it says, I am the God of Abraham. Not, I was the God of Abraham. I am presently the God of Abraham. But that's not his argument. Because the am, the verb, actually isn't in the text. It isn't in the Old Testament text either. The argument is something even more profound. It's this. I'll give it to you in short. I am presently the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Because I made an eternal covenant with them. And I'm not going to leave them at death. I'm not just naming their name because I was once their God and I abandoned them unto death. No, I'm their God now. I made a covenant with them. I am their God. I am their helper. I am their protector. And I'm still there for them. And in fact, they are here with me in the eternal state. That's what Jesus is saying So Jesus reveals to them that actually they'd misread the Bible because they had a faulty assumption. And we do this all the time. We miss things in Scripture because we bring an assumption to it. They missed eternity in the page of Moses because they thought there was no eternity. William Lane said it this, like this. If God has assumed the task of protecting the patriarchs from misfortune during the course of their life, but fails to deliver them from that supreme misfortune which marks the definitive and absolute check upon their hopes, his protection is of little value. 
but it is inconceivable that God would leave the final word to death, of which all the misfortunes and sufferings of human existence are only a foretaste. Here's some comfort. God will not abandon you in death. If you're suffering, if you're in sickness, God will not abandon you. If he will not abandon you in death, he will not abandon you in life. God is your protector. God is your comfort. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of Rossi and Ben and David. He's the God of Patrick. He's your present God, and he will get you through into eternity. And so it ends. Verse 27, you are quite wrong. And by saying this very sentence, by having this whole altercation, as we saw last week, what's going to happen is these guys are going to go away, and in a couple of nights, they're going to meet back together, and they're going to arrest Jesus. And in fact, these Sadducees are going to arrest Jesus, they're going to put him on trial, and at various times, they're going to slap him in the face when his hands are bound. They're going to spit on him. And eventually, he's going to be delivered up unto death, and he's going to be crucified publicly, executed. The one whom they say, they believe there is no resurrection. And three days later, he's going to rise from the dead. And here's the beauty. Because he dies, because he has this question answered and because he corrects them because they arrest him he will die and then he will rise again and because Jesus rises again you and I have hope that we too will rise again with him if you want to study that more go to 1 Corinthians 15 the whole chapter is about the fact that because Jesus dies first we will rise too it's our eternal hope Jesus said I'm the resurrection and the life Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he looks at them and says, do you believe this? Let me ask you this today. Do you believe this? Do you believe there's a resurrection? Do you believe that there's an afterlife? And do you believe in Jesus Christ? Have you ever put your eternity into his hands? Have you ever asked him to be your comfort in life and death? Jesus promises that whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Theology goes wrong when you've got a small God and a closed Bible. Jesus doesn't want you and I to be in error today about eternity. It's okay to be wrong in your HSC. It lasts for some time, and it does. Sorry, Esther, uh, any of you. It does matter to get wrong in your HSC. But to get it wrong for eternity... That's a fearful thing. That's a very fearful thing. And so Jesus teaches the truth that there will be a resurrection. We will be raised again. And if you put your faith in him, you'll be like an angel for all eternity singing, worthy is the lamb. And nothing, nothing, nothing will ever shake that promise. Let me finish with the words of Romans 8. For I am sure that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is there life after death? Yes. In Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, teach us to number our days. You have put eternity in our hearts. Help us to not be in error. Lord, help us to not be too attached to this world. Help us to not have faulty assumptions. Help us to not have a small version of you and a closed Bible. Lord, free us from doubt. Free us from fear. Put in us a joy. Put in us a song. Put in us these words, worthy is the Lamb. Lord, we give you our life because we belong to you. For anyone here who has not yet put your faith in Jesus, put your faith in him right now. Believe in him and he will give you eternal life. Lord God, we give you our life here and we give you our eternal life. Worthy is the Lamb. In Jesus' name, amen.